Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher, here in Secaucus, New Jersey, one of my favorite towns, of course. I'm at a hotel playing in the first of many circuit series, the January online circuit series. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a good time. I mean, um, the, the quality of play on the site has improved, which is bad news for us. We want there to be lots and lots of bad players. Um, early in the pandemic, online poker had a little mini boom, but I get the vibe or the feeling that some of the uh, less skilled players from that boom have either gone busto or possibly they live in a place where they are allowed to leave their homes. Uh, I'm not sure what's going on, but especially with these big events i've noticed that my competition is tougher than it was before and so to counteract that i have been tightening up my game a little bit maybe paying extra attention to which of my opponents appear to be online superstar crushers following gto and possibly using rta and i wish i had one more three-letter abbreviation for something but i don't FBI, I don't know, ACR, doesn't really make sense, but uh, yeah, things are challenging here, so if you're at a tough table, now some of the tables are tougher than others, but I mark the uh, opponents similar to those of you who have been watching the heads-up match between Daniel and Doug that we'll get to in a minute, the players that I think have a substantial skill disadvantage I label them as fish and the players that I think are a little better than I am all the way up to way, way better than I am, I label sharks. So sometimes I get to a table and four of my seven opponents are sharks. That's not a good ratio there. You want want a better fish to shark ratio than that. And so I, I find that my old tricks don't work as well against the tougher opponents, which kind of makes sense because that's what makes them tougher opponents. So the way I've adjusted my game is much stricter starting ranges, not really getting out of line that much, and really wanting to have blockers when I bluff, not bluffing as often, uh, kind of those sort of adjustments. I'm trying to actually play a little bit closer to GTO as I understand it, although as you guys know, I don't exactly spend hours and hours and hours every week with solvers like many of my opponents do. So trying to out GTO them is probably not going to work for me. So I've got to try to find holes in their games that can be exploited. Now, if someone is following a GTO strategy with or without the help of real-time assistance, I will not be able to find holes in that person's strategy because GTO by its nature is an unbeatable strategy. So Against those opponents, I'm actually looking to increase my variance. So I can't beat you 
skill-wise, then I need to try to beat you luck-wise. And variance is actually the friend of the lesser player. So, for example, let's take a crazy example. Say you're in a tournament where you start with 50,000 chips and the blinds are 50 and 100 with no ante. So we've got 500 big blinds in this crazy example, right? Uh, on the very first hand of that tournament, it would be insane to go all in with pocket jacks if you saw somehow that your opponent had ace-king, right? Yeah, you are about a 57% favorite holding pocket jacks versus ace-king. But to get all in against that hand with what's just slightly better than a coin flip, if you think about it, would be silly if you have a skill advantage that you can exploit over and over and over 500 big blinds deep for the next many, many hours. So rather than risk your whole tournament on that coin flip, if you are one of the better players in the tournament, doing that would be suicidal, really. It's just unnecessary risk, and the reward isn't even worth it, to be honest. Uh, but if you're in a situation where you are not as skilled as the average player in the tournament or at the table, now I'm not sure if I've ever been below average for the tournament itself, but I've certainly been at tables where I feel like I'm guessing a lot. And that is a very good indicator that you might be at a tough table if all of your opponents have you constantly guessing and you, by comparison, are not making them guess as often, then the player who's doing the most guessing is, by definition, losing. So in order to eliminate some of that, I would actually take that spot with the Jacks versus Ace-King. For that matter, I'd probably be glad to take the Ace-King spot. Now you might say, you mean you'd be willing to get 500 big blinds all in with Ace-King? if you knew that your only opponent had pocket jacks? And my answer is yes. Um, if I feel like I have a skill disadvantage, then I'm trying to flip coins and play those big pots and hope to suck out or get lucky or win the flip or whatever I have to do to avoid going skill versus skill against players who have more skill than I do. So that might sound silly to you, but it's kind of how I generally approach really tough tables and honestly, guys, it's worked out for me. Playing bigger pots, you know, the best player at the table wants to play a lot of small pots and chip away using his edge and not really risk all of his chips in the process. So turning that upside down, the worst player at the table, which I'm usually not the worst player, I hope, at any table, but I've been at some tables where it's, it's definitely possible. Uh, and at those tables, I'm the one who's trying to inflate the pots. I wait for good hands. And then I really try to get into those big all-in confrontations. Now, maybe not with 500 big blinds for all of it, especially because we very seldom have the luxury of seeing our opponent's cards. But yeah, if you feel like you have a spot, say you flop like an open-ended straight flush draw, well, virtually no hand is more than 40% against a huge draw like that. And so that's a spot where I'd be playing my hand very aggressively, Obviously hoping that my opponent folds to my semi-bluff, but in the meantime, I'm pretty happy to get it all in and just hope to catch one of my many outs in a spot like that. So uh, that's a little bit of kind of general advice for how to play at really tough tables, the likes of which I have been seeing with some regularity on WSOP.com, I'm sad to report. Speaking of online poker, some big news this week as the appellate court again 
ruled against the Department of Justice's ruling concerning the Wire Act of 1961 or whatever it is. Uh, this is something that happened a couple of years ago during the Trump administration. And many people think that the large amount of money that was donated to the Trump campaign from the owner, the late owner of the Venetian, Sheldon Adelson, uh, had a lot to do with this decision being pushed through during Trump's presidency. Um, I don't really know how much lobbying and how much, but I do know the guy gave a lot of money because that's a matter of public record and it doesn't feel to me like a coincidence that when one candidate gets a ton of money from someone who has been very outspoken about his distaste for online poker and online gambling in general, and then this huge ruling comes down about online gambling uh, just a, a year or two later, it feels a little suspicious to me. But regardless, the good news for all of us is that that decision has been overturned. So what happened a couple of years ago in 2018 when Trump was in office and Sheldon Adelson was sending him lots and lots of money has been reversed. Now, I've never passed the bar. I don't know a lot about the law, but everything I've been reading seems to indicate that this could end up being great news for online poker nationwide because it effectively allows the states to legalize online gaming of all types, including poker, without fear of the federal government saying, hey, you are in violation of the Wire Act of 1961. So uh, good news all around, and hopefully this will increase the availability of online poker around these United States. The other thing that's been going on this week is Doug Polk, you guys, has put the hammer down on Daniel Negreanu. Now, just a week ago, I was on this podcast talking about how Daniel had made a game of it, how he had been down almost a million dollars, and now he was only down, I think, at one point he was down less than 600000 maybe five I'm not sure why that number is standing out in my head. I think at one point, Daniel was only down five sixty recently. Uh, that's 560000 if you're keeping score at home. Uh, well, now it's all the way back up to a million again, because yesterday, as, as we are recording this on Thursday, uh, yesterday, Wednesday, was a banner day for Doug. I believe the best day he's had since the start of the challenge, winning over $250,000 from Daniel. And now where the match stands is that with 7,000 hands or so left to play, Doug is up by over a million dollars. So we shall see very soon in the next month or two whether Daniel will start to implement uh, the strategy that I was basically uh, referencing that I play when I'm at a disadvantage and taking a lot of big chances and trying to build a lot of big pots. Daniel has a lot of ground to make up for and he's got, I think, barely enough time to realistically do that. But if he keeps folding to Doug's bluffs and paying off his value bets, as was the trend yesterday, he's in for a world of hurt. So I think it's going to get really interesting. I know Daniel is not one to just lie down. He is going to fight, fight, fight to the bitter end. And so there may be some strategic deviation from the game theoretically optimal strategy in the name of trying to surmount 
the huge mountain that Daniel Negreanu now sees in front of him. So it should be fun either way. Last thing I'll share before we get to our strategy hand for this week, which I think is a pretty good one, by the way. Uh, I want to I follow up with a listener, David Graham, who I mentioned on last week's podcast, who, is, if you may recall, had sent me a, a message on Twitter, at Clayton Comic. That's how you can reach me, on twitter.com slash Clayton Comic. Uh, David Graham uh, is playing in, well, I, I almost said Biloxi, but no, he's in Tunica, Mississippi, where casinos are open and live poker is happening, but at shorthanded tables. So we talked on last week's podcast about how to adjust, and basically I recommended stepping up the aggression a little bit, especially versus opponents who aren't used to shorthanded play. So just yesterday I received another correspondence on Twitter from dgram918, and he says, so I just wanted to drop you another line and tell you that after listening to the podcast and taking your advice, my first trip to Tunica since the episode aired was last night with $75 buy-in turbo, and he ended up chopping three ways <laughs> for the top three prizes uh, with two other people. So, uh, you know, of course, this is what we call confirmation bias. I'm going to take full credit for David's victory. <laughs> Although if David had gone in back to Tunica and, and played again and, and lost on the first hand, he would have said, you know, Clayton, you told me to be more aggressive and a lot of good that did me. <laughs> but yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it. So uh, he says, I took your advice and got aggressive. Uh, we had eight players left and six got paid and I had to make a huge lay down. Uh, you know, he goes on to give me some more details. Basically, it, it comes down to he didn't back away from being aggressive and it served him well in in the end and then he writes thank you so much for the advice and hopefully i can continue being profitable down there yeah david i wish you the best i, I really got a kick out of this because it, it was such a quick turnaround right it's like i i talked about him just one week ago today on the podcast and now right away he got results uh, implementing the strategy that i recommended so of course that makes me feel like the world's greatest poker coach but of course, this is all tongue-in-cheek, guys. I do not get that much credit. David's the one who played the hands and ended up with a nice chop of you know, third, second, and first. I'm assuming he probably got right around second place money. That's typically what the payouts are uh, in your average Tunica, Mississippi casino. So congrats to you, David Graham. And if anyone else wants to share goals for the year, it's not too late to share your goals for the year. Um, and what else is going on with you poker-wise. Uh, one of my favorite things about this job is interacting with the listeners to the podcast. So please hit me up on Twitter, at Clayton Comic. Okay, so our strategy hand this week is going to come from a $215 World Series of Poker online circuit event that I played in last weekend. I am at one of those really tough tables I described earlier a few well-known professional Las Vegas pros at my table, and one of them ends up being the villain in this hand, which I think will make it pretty interesting. Um, I, I wanted to discuss this hand because I'm actually not sure about my decisions, and I'd love to get some feedback from all of you. So 
Uh, let's talk about the situation where, and this is fairly late in the tournament. I think this was the fourth table that I had played on. Uh, you know, several hours in, we were not in the money yet, but I think around. It's not bubble time yet, but that's coming maybe like in another hour. So we're about 50 places away from from the money. So the blinds are 1250 and 2500. There's a 300 ante and our table is nine handed. The action folds to one of the toughest players that I've ever seen online. And he is someone that I have tangled with a bit over the summer in all of those bracelet events. And I've noticed that he is very tough, mostly tight, but he certainly has the moves and he seems to play a lot more hands in position than he does out of position. He seems to bluff with proper frequencies. Um, You know, he's just a very hard player to figure. So that's the setup. And he min raises to 5,000 with about 70,000 behind. And the action folds to us in the big blind holding the nine six of spades. So if you wanted to say under the circumstances, especially against this opponent that you don't wanna call, I'm actually more than okay with that to tell you guys the truth. The problem for me is I just can't resist the pot odds I mean, uh, by the time it folds to me, there's already 11,450 in the middle and it only costs me 2,500 to call. So I'm getting, what is that? Like four and a half to one. So I I can't fold even against a tough player knowing that I'll be out of position. You know, I do have a hand that can flop pretty well. So, I mean, not that nine, six of spades is a very playable hand post flop, But given those pot odds, I think I can go ahead and take a flop. What we're looking for is a flush draw on the flop or maybe even just a top pair of nines, maybe like some gut shot action. I would probably be getting involved with any of those flops and with top pair or a flush draw or seven, eight for the open ender. I'd be happy to just check raise all in here because I, again, I don't want to try to outplay this guy. I just want to put him to a a tough situation. I mean, we have 65,000. He's barely got us covered. We have like 26, 27 big blinds. um, Or as you know, the way I prefer to look at it is our M is right around 10-ish. So for that reason, I'm I'm going to play this pot and I'm going to play it aggressively. Well, I mean, I will play it aggressively if I hit any of those flops that we just mentioned. Or, of course, if I hit trips or some miracle flop, of course, we're not going to fold in those cases either. But, yeah, the plan is to mostly check and fold on the flop. But when we have any of the above-mentioned combos, we're going to try to get all in and see if we can push this guy off of whatever he is opening from the cutoff with. So we see a flop and it comes king of diamonds, seven of hearts, four of spades. So king, seven, four, rainbow, hero holding the nine, six suited of spades. Uh, So it's not a great flop for our hand. This is a, I mean, we do have some back doors, right? You know, we could pick up another spade, on the turn to give us a flush draw, 
several cards could hit the turn that would give us a straight draw of some kind. Obviously, we might even be able to win this pot with a nine or a six, but all things considered, the plan here is to check and fold. I think it's a better flop for opponent's range than it is for ours. He should have a lot of king X, uh, certainly ace king, pocket aces, things like that. And we don't, we just don't have all the strongest hands. Maybe we have middle set, bottom set as the top of our range, but so does he. So he has all the sets and all the kings and all the things. So the plan is to check and give up on this pot, but surprisingly, our opponent decides to check behind. So even though it's a better flop for his range than it is for mine, he opted not to bet. Now, I don't know what to make of that, except to say this guy is a absolute crusher and there's a good chance he just checks back sometimes with a king, especially because he doesn't have that much to worry about. And therefore, he can also check back with his heir. So we don't know what to make of this check. And that's what you get when you play against a good opponent. So there's 13, almost 14K in, in the middle. And the turn comes the seven of spades, which is a pretty good card for us and for our range. So many times when that turn card pairs the bottom or middle card on the flop, uh, that is a good spot for a bluff if you are the player in the big blind, just because you can always have that card. I mean, even if the tray had paired on the, on the turn, I would say, of course, I have plenty of combos that include a tray. So now I would have trips. So I actually have a nuts advantage. I mean, sure, he could still have a set of kings, four threes. He could have a full house with the pocket sevens. He has those in his hand. But when that middle card pairs, I think it actually gives me a range advantage. And a lot of solver work has shown that those are some of the best cards for us to bluff. Just the fact that the middle card pairs. Because a lot of my opponent's range will also, of course, include hands like ace-jack, maybe queen-jack. I mean, he raised from the cutoff, so he should have a pretty wide range there. And he is extremely likely to fold all of that range because who wants to go to war when he might be drawing dead, right? So it's a good spot for a bluff. And I think that because we're going to polarize ourselves here, we want to make it pretty big. Let's see how much I fired. Also, please note that the uh, turn card also gave us a flush draw. So it's not only that the middle card paired, but I'm even more enticed to do this because of the flush draw that we pick up here on the turn. So into 14,000, we bet 10.5. So a sizable bet, you know, about 70% of the pot. I think it's a good sizing. Also sets me up for another big bet that can really do some damage on the river if we either make our flush or decide to continue barreling. So I like my sizing here, and I think that generally speaking, when you're representing either a big hand or a bluff, you want to be using a bigger sizing. And many times, 4th Street, you should be betting more than half the pot. That is also the result of tons of solver work, mostly done by Andrew Brokus and not <laughs> by yours truly. 
So uh, we fire 10-5 and our opponent decides to make the call. So now, just setting things up here, uh, we have about 50,000 remaining in our stack and our opponent has about 55. And in the pot there is now about 35K. So that means a river bet that's all in would be about 140% of the pot, which... I mean, yeah, would I do that if I had a seven or a full house? Or would I go for a smaller value bet? So that's the question that was kind of in my mind while waiting for the river card to come off. And it was the five of clubs. So our final board is king, seven, four, seven, Five with no flush. So we end up with just a nine high. Well, I think our river decision here is a pretty close one. Uh, we do block a straight, right? Six, eight makes a straight. Also six tray. So really we block two straights. I'm sorry, guys, before I was talking about the bottom card as though it had been a tray. It's actually a four. Okay. So uh, I, I have the board correct now. It's king, seven, four, seven, five. So apologize for any confusion that caused. And now with this river spot, what do you guys think? I mean, do we have enough here to fire again? I mean, we block two straights. We have more sevens in our range than our opponent does. Um, our opponent didn't bet the flop, which may or may not cap his range. I would lean towards it does, but certainly he would sometimes check back with a set of kings just because he would have the board locked up. Although GTO bots are generally teaching us that we're all slow playing too much, just because you flop a monster doesn't mean you should not bet your hand. Uh, especially because if your opponent has nothing on the flop, he's usually going to have nothing on the turn as well. So all you do is end up costing yourself money a lot of times when... A flop bet could get called. I mean, we have the bottom of our range with nine high here. There's zero chance that we're going to win a showdown, right? Uh, virtually zero anyway. I personally think it's flawed thinking to say that every time you can only win a pot by firing at it, that you should always fire at it. I mean, people who think that way bluff way too often. I know I used to be one of them. So is this a spot for Clayton to double barrel well i don't know i i think it's really close and the real reason i wanted to present this hand i decided to give up i think another good option would be to shove here i would not be a fan of the smaller bet just because i think this opponent would call a lot of those bets a lot especially because as i mentioned he's played with me a lot he knows that i'm not afraid to bluff if he had something like king, queen, of course he's going to call no matter what. Uh, but, you know, we're more like our bluff targets, I think, would be hands like pocket nines, pocket tens, pocket jacks. Like that seems to be the bluff target. And of course, all his non paired hands like ace, queen, and on down. So uh, it's a pretty big chunk of his range, which is what makes this, or at least it's one thing that makes this uh, an attractive bluffing spot. I think a key part of analyzing that is how many of his unpaired hands would call our 70% bet.
bet on the turn. So if he's always calling or often calling that bet with hands like ace-jack, ace-queen, you know, just because the board is paired, so it makes it less likely that I have something combinatorically, then bluffing again now is a better play. And on the other hand, if our opponent always has a strong hand when he calls on the turn, then giving up now is probably the best play. As it turns out, our opponent is an absolute monster, so he will have the right amount of both <laughs> all the time, and he's virtually unexploitable. So that's partly why I decided to give up, because I think when I bluff, he will have the right amount of calls with the right amount of marginal hands to make doing so unprofitable. So if the EV of bluffing is zero, then I'm actually better off holding on to these chips. I, you know, I gave it a shot on the turn when I picked up all those outs, but the river, while tempting, did not convince me to pull the trigger again. And my opponent ends up winning this very nice pot with pocket jacks. Okay, so his hand makes sense. He has a three streets, he has a two streets of value type of hand on a king high flop, so he checks back on the flop for pot control. And then if I don't fire the turn, I think that he does. And then he chooses to check behind when a few straights fill up on the river. So we'll never know whether a kamikaze line would have worked for me or not against this opponent. He's certainly capable of calling a shove with jacks here. We'll just never know. But I'm kind of proud of myself for not being tempted to bluff every time I have nine high. This is a good spot for me. Something I'm really learning is when to pull the trigger and when not to. But do you guys think I'm taking it too far? Do you think that double barreling is preferable here against opponents full range? Let me know your thoughts at Clayton Comic on Twitter. And for everyone here at Tournament Poker Edge, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you so much for listening.